Hello and welcome to Better Strangers. This is the audio version of the article Revolutionary Horror, John Carpenter's They Live. Just a note, this is the first article in our monthly theme on revolution. Um, so if you want to hear more on that topic, uh, definitely give us a follow because we'll be doing that through uh, most of November. This article is written and read by me, Matt Hirschberger. It's on John Carpenter's 1988 Pulp Fest, They Live, uh, and how that is by far the easiest and most fun way to learn dense leftist media theory. Pro tip, if you want to subliminally embed a subversive idea into America's collective unconscious, do it while having Roddy Piper and Keith David beat the ever-loving shit out of each other for a full seven minutes. It does not get much more pulpy than John Carpenter's 1988 movie, They Live. The movie is based off of a 1963 short story by Ray Nelson called Eight O'Clock in the Morning, in which the main character accidentally wakes up, quote, all the way after a hypnotist's performance. Now awake, he realizes that humanity has been brainwashed by an alien species he calls the Fascinators. The Fascinators are using mass media and mind control to convince humans to reproduce and consume and obey their every command so they can exploit the Earth's resources. The story was originally published in the magazine of science fiction and fantasy, and you can still read it online. It is not particularly well written, but the idea underneath it is cool, so Nelson had it adapted into a comic in 1986, which is where Carpenter first came across it. You can also read that, some of that comic online, but uh, I'll just give you a little taste. You can look at this in the, uh, the images of the email. Uh, it is super horny and super pulpy. Carpenter optioned the comic and the short story to make They Live. He used the film to express his discontent with the rampant consumerism of Ronald Reagan's America, which makes it sound loftier than it is, because the movie is full-blown pulp. The movie is the source of the famous quote, I'm here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum, and for a solid seven minutes of the movie, a huge chunk of its 94-minute runtime, the hero... Pro wrestler Roddy Piper absolutely wails on his friend Keith David while trying to get him to put on the pair of sunglasses that will allow him to see the aliens. Uh, that was Carpenter's main change from the comic, other than removing most of the full-blown horniness. Carpenter is a master of delivering high-concept ideas in extremely lowbrow packages, but what's surprising is just how high-concept the ideas are. They appear to pull heavily from Guy Debord's radical tract The Society of the Spectacle, which, to the average person, is virtually unreadable. The Situationists, The Spectacle, and Instagram. DeBoard was the most influential member of a group of radical libertarian Marxist intellectuals known as the Situationists. While they are not widely known to most Americans, the influence on their work is. Malcolm McLaren drew heavily on their ideas while creating the Sex Pistols, and as such, punk rock is heavily indebted to the Situationists. The modern street art movement, particularly the work of artists like Banksy or Shepard Fairey, is also heavily indebted to the Situationist idea of détournement, which advocates vandalizing capitalist advertisements and images as a way of subverting the capitalist system. I've got a little footnote here. Uh, Shepard Ferry, actually, uh, his most famous work, The Obey Giant, which is a kind of a stylized picture of Andre the Giant, is lifted directly from John Carpenter's movie, They Live. As a second footnote, I've discussed in a lot of other articles another famous situationist idea, which is the idea of psychogeography. Uh, if you want to read kind of the basics on where to start with that, I do have a link to um, one of my articles on that at the bottom of the email. His book, The Society of the Spectacle, was DeBoard's attempt to explain how capitalism has eroded how we view really basic things like personal fulfillment. Before capitalism, humans defined success and fulfillment as being a certain type of person. The first stage of capitalism shifted us to where we define success and fulfillment by having certain things. And now, in the later stage of capitalism, DeBoard said, we don't even care about having things, we just want to appear to have things. 
When this happens, we start having relationships that aren't with humans, but with images humans project of themselves. What matters in these sorts of relationships isn't so much the human underneath the images, but the things that the humans have centered their lives around, whether that's around certain possessions, around a certain lifestyle, around a certain ideology, and around the way they present their families and their romantic relationships. We're always in Debord's degraded vision of the world, just selling ourselves to others, like we are commodities rather than people. This was written in 1967, by the way, a full 43 years before the invention of Instagram and long before the idea of parasocial relationships ever entered our public consciousness. Going even further, Debord suggested that in this world, humans would stop being creatures that do things and would start being creatures that merely consumed things. Mass media, with all of its commercials and suggestions of how people should behave, would come to absorb more and more of our lives, capturing our attention with constant, wild, outrageous spectacles that would only serve to distract us from the disempowered drudgery of our own lives. Manufacturing Consent and Content As I read this, I am coming off of a month of rebranding exercises that I undertook to try and make this site into something that is a little bit more coherent so I can actually make a living as a writer. I've resisted this sort of exercise for a long time because I've been loath to turn myself into, into a product to sell. Branding has become a ubiquitous exercise in the modern economy, but we regularly forget that the root of the word comes from the act of burning symbols into animals or humans to, make them not, to mark them not as autonomous creatures, but as property. What's made me more uneasy is that writers are no longer just writers. They are influencers and content creators and are expected to plumb their lives and often the lives of their children or significant others for personal profit, all in order to project a certain image to people who are not so much followers as they are consumers. For the most part, if we wish to make a living off of our craft, we must resign ourselves to the fact that it's not our writing, our abilities, or our art that this economy finds valuable, but rather it's our influence and being able to cash in on the trust that we've built with our followers in order to sell meaningless products. Worse still, the fact that we all have to sell something in order to survive in this economy means that we're, not all, we're all not only complicit in it, but are financially dependent on the system that's supporting us. Post about revolution on TikTok or Facebook all you want. If you do it well enough, you'll make these platforms tons of money by capturing all the attention and putting so many eyes onto so many ads. If you do anything that actually threatens the system, though, you can expect to lose your platform and your livelihood. As a result, we're all likely to end up saying the same things. Our algorithmic bubbles turn into giant echo chambers where everyone agrees and mon money is slowly funneled out of our pockets and into the offshore bank accounts of the immensely rich and powerful. Conform. If you suddenly realized that all of this was true, wouldn't it feel like you'd just put on a pair of sunglasses that showed you that your entire world was a lie? And wouldn't you be willing to do anything, including whooping the ass of national treasure Keith David, to get other people to wake up? Carpenter may or may not have read The Society of the Spectacle, but he's long been open about his leftism, and in 2017, when neo-Nazis were trying to argue that They Live was about a cabal of Jewish puppet masters running the world, he pushed back in a tweet or an X or whatever you want to call it. Quote, they live is about yuppies and unrestrained capitalism. It has nothing to do with Jewish control of the world, which is slander and a lie. End quote. A core problem with the writings of Debord and the other situationists is that they are dense in the way that only French Marxist critical theory can be. This doesn't mean that they weren't influential. In May 1968, a year after the publication of the Society of the Spectacle, there was a mass left-wing uprising against the, the government of Charles de Gaulle. This uprising was spearheaded by students who graffitied situationist manifestos on the walls of Paris. 
After they were brutally repressed by the police, trade unions joined in on the uprising, and France was vir virtually shut down by wildcat general strikes that included an amazing 22% of the total population. It looked for a brief second as if it would be an actual revolution, and Charles de Gaulle fled the country. By the skin of its teeth, the government managed to stay in power, and de Gaulle remained in power for a few more years. Part of this was because the government was able to suck the wind out of the movement's sails by giving large wage increases to the working class, which, to be fair, makes it an extremely effective strike. In the end, only the radicals and the students remained, and they were not sufficient for mounting an actual revolution. The question facing people who want to see a sea change in how we live in the world is, how do you make the theory easy to understand for people who don't read political theory for fun, which is, you know, the vast majority of people upon whom your revolution will depend? The answer, I think, is obvious. You do it by giving the Sex Pistols instruments they barely know how to play, or by giving radicalized hooligans a can of spray paint in a city full of billboards, or by giving John Carpenter an extremely small budget to make a movie. I have a couple more notes I just want to add on to the end here. That uh, A couple of these are in the article, but one of them isn't. Um, so I do have a totally untestable hypothesis on um, America and kind of like its obsession with advertisement. Uh, I think part of the reason the United States is completely drunk on patriotism is in part because it is legal, even encouraged, to use patriotic images, whether that be like military veterans, bald eagles, or a waving American flag, to sell people beers, trucks, and insurance. Uh, I can barely watch an NFL game anymore because of the sheer amount of America being sold, and I wonder if it wasn't saturating our commercials so much if we would be like you know so completely gung-ho about the flag finally i wanted to add something uh, about a book that i read after i wrote this article uh, it's called the occult features of anarchism by erica lagalise and she talks about how conspiracy theories which have become so ubiquitous among the working class could actually be seen as a feature of the working class is trying to create a sort of almost like a mythological understanding of how the world works. And a lot of the time, um, you know, we make fun of conspiracy theorists for believing absolutely insane stuff, but like, you know, for believing, for example, Pizzagate, the idea that the Democratic Party is actually an elaborate ring covering up, um, you know, pedophiles. But that does kind of sound like the truth when you consider that a major institution like the Catholic Church, for example, was found to in effect, to be an elaborate ruse covering up a global ring of pedophiles. A lot of the stuff that we think of as really ridiculous when it comes to conspiracy theories echoes with true things that have actually happened. And uh, so she actually talks about how conspiracy theories are an attempt um, by working class people to understand why things are going so wrong in their world. And while a lot of them are completely wrongheaded or they've been co-opted by right-wing forces to instead put the blame on... Um, you know, populist or leftist movements. Um, in reality, uh, those the, there is an element of truth within those conspiracy theories, even if like the actual details of it are so completely far off base that to to the point of being like totally ridiculous. So, if you're interested in that kind of topic and how um, conspiracies conspiracy theories influence uh, the left and especially the working class, um, that book it's it's another very dense book, but it is 100% worth reading. Um, that is it for today. I will have another article up on Wednesday. 
Um, just have to check real quick. Yeah, Wednesday's article is about um, the uh, the argument uh, by Andreas Malm, a famous climate activist, that um, activists should start engaging in sabotage in order to uh, affect change on climate change. Um, he uh, famously wrote a very provocatively titled book called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which was uh, very quickly made into a movie. So I'll be discussing that and also kind of like the counterpoint uh, argument, which is uh, the civil resistance model, which is very popular among climate activists right now, and whether or not you can get a peaceful revolution. So uh, I will see you on Wednesday.